Welcome to War Stories. I'm Preston Stewart, and this is a show where we talk about America's military history through the lens of individual acts of heroism and valor. Enjoy. Today we're going to try something new. What we've been doing, what I've been doing is bouncing around between conflicts. So you might hear something today about the Korean War, and then the next episode might be about you know, a soldier in Afghanistan, and then the next could be Vietnam, and so on and so forth. And I'm intentionally varying these up because I like reading and learning about each one of those. And, and you know, the idea was if any of you are, are more interested in one period of time or one conflict than the other, just hold on, you know, we'll get back to the First World War before too long. But I also understand that if, for those of you who have been listening for a while now and, and have heard multiple episodes, you're going to hear me repeating myself at times. Let's say we're talking about the start of the Korean War, trying to paint that high-level picture. You may have heard me say something pretty similar three, four, five, six times. I understand that can get a little repetitive. Now, the idea is if somebody's listening for the first time and they catch, you know, the most recent episode about the Korean war, then they get that backstory. But, um, you know, understand that you may have heard it four times already by that point. So I'm going to try something a little bit different here and interested in, in your feedback, rather than bounce around from conflict to conflict, I'm going to do a little bit more of what I'll call kind of a mini series, if you will. I'm going to focus in on not necessarily battles, but shorter periods of time, kind of windows of time within various conflicts. And we'll tell those stories like we have throughout war stories through individual actions. We're just going to kind of group some of them together. So rather than bouncing from one conflict to the next, we're going to do a group. In this case, I think it's going to be five. A group of stories that all have you know, follow the same general theme. And in this case, we're going to talk about today, part one of this initial series is going to focus on the invasion of Iraq in 2003. And to kick that off today, we're going to talk about hospital apprentice, Luis Fonseca. Fonseca was serving with Charlie Company, part of the 1st Battalion, 2nd Marines, and that was part of Regimental Combat Team 2, part of Task Force Tarawa in the Marine in the 1st Marine Expeditionary Force in 2003. That's a mouthful there. But to, to get into his actions that happened during what's known as the Battle of Nasiriyah in, uh, in March of 2003, it's worth backing up and spending some time in this episode today to kind of paint the picture for the next few. What are we doing in Iraq in the first place? Now, this is pretty contentious today. It was really contentious in 2003 in the lead up to the war. This wasn't, there's a lot of ways to look at this. There were, I want to say just a few months prior to the actual invasion, it was like 65% of Americans favored some sort of military action against Saddam Hussein. So there was there were people around the world speaking out against it, but it's also worth remembering that as a country, we were generally on board. And I think the reason for that goes back to 
9-11, the, 2000, the, the September 11, 2001 terrorist attacks in the United States that claimed the lives of about 3,000 Americans. 9-11 opened our eyes. This is, this is my perspective. It, it showed us that we were at war and we may not have known it yet. So, you know, here we are, the United States, we, we have the, you know, we'll beat our chest and say we have the strongest military in the history of the world, not just today, right? But in the history of the world. And we share borders with allies, Mexico and, and Canada. We're not naive. We understand that war could come about at some point, but we've got this all powerful military to protect us. And on September 11, 2001, I think it was this event that forced us to recognize that there are people out there that wish to do us harm, that can do us harm, and by September 11th, showed that they have the ability to, to do so and have, and have done it, have carried it out. And I think it was a little bit of a shock. And I like comparisons. I always try to, to come up with comparisons for things to, to help paint a picture. And what comes to mind for me after 9-11 is the idea of if your home was broken into. When your home is broken into, it, it kind of, it shatters a lot of your thinking. You may not feel secure there anymore. You may take some actions that you wouldn't have taken had it not happened, right? Maybe it's time for a new security camera. Maybe you buy a gun. Maybe you move. Now, even if you weren't harmed in, in the break-in, it just, you know, your confidence is at a different level. You're scared. You're nervous. All of a sudden, you have to account for things maybe you hadn't considered before. Maybe you leave lights on outside your house more frequently now. Now, over time, you're going to adjust and adapt and kind of go back to either what you, what you were doing before or maybe kind of a new normal. We'll use that term. That's kind of the United States post 9-11. We were making changes. We were going to adjust a little bit, but we were scared. We were nervous. We didn't really know what to do. And this is a broad oversimplification, but we looked at what Al-Qaeda had done, flying a few planes into the World Trade Center and the Pentagon and then crashing in a field in Pennsylvania. It's said, man, look at the damage they did with just that. What if they get their hands on military hardware or a biological agent or a nuclear weapon? Ooh. So now we have this enemy that we're kind of awakened. When I say we, I'm talking about kind of the, the overall American population. There, there were efforts in the government to combat international terrorism prior to 9-11. I just don't know that it was a, a household, a common household theme. But now we've got this idea after 9-11 that there's this enemy out there. What if, they get a, what if they get a hold of one of those? We call those weapons of mass destruction, right? And it's worth saying that looking back when we, we have captured Al-Qaeda documents and, and transcripts and, and uh, have monitored some communication over the years, there was debate even within Al-Qaeda's senior leadership as to whether or not the use of weapons of mass destruction was permissible and whether they should even. So if they were sitting on a stockpile, it wasn't a guarantee that they would use it. Interesting little piece, but um, that doesn't mean they wouldn't. 
doesn't mean that other groups wouldn't. And if you are a leader in charge of protecting the United States or protecting your people, wherever you are around the world, you can't take that to the bank, right? You can't say, well, our enemies say they may or may not. So we're going to bank on the fact that they don't. Fingers crossed. So we're nervous about terrorism, scared, nervous, scared about the possibility of terrorism kind of reaching this new level that includes weapons of mass destruction. And there's some kind of feeling, and it's weird, and it's hard to explain, but but I think you'll get where I'm going here. We're not as nervous about countries having these weapons, generally. I'm not super nervous about um, our allies or even some of our adversaries having some of these weapons, as you are with a rogue state or, or a, an individual or a group that has these weapons of mass destruction. For some reason, the latter there is so much more nerve wracking. And that's the thing we can't, you know, can't risk happening. And that's kind of the idea within the United States post 9-11. So immediately after 9-11, and we're going to get to Iraq here, here quickly, I promise. In the immediate aftermath, we have troops, CIA operatives, um, a lot of folks in Afghanistan pretty quickly. The Taliban fall relatively quickly. Al-Qaeda is on the run. We're hunting bin Laden. We're hunting Al-Qaeda. But it's pretty well understood and agreed upon that just killing bin Laden or even destroying his entire inner circle, it's not going to end this thing that is global um, global terrorism or the global jihadi movement, right? So on the one hand, we're working to destroy the organization, recognizing that that's not a one, two, maybe even 10 year fight. That's going to go on for a long time. On the other hand, we've got this concern of weapons of mass destruction. Now they've been around for quite a while, right? Um, but now the, the, the focus within our, our society, the focus within the United States is not just the proliferation of nuclear weapons, let's say, but what if one of these rogue actors or an, an organization like Al-Qaeda gets their hands on it? Then all bets are off. So again, oversimplification, we start looking around the world and where are some of these weapons at risk maybe of falling into the hands of, of our enemies? And you're going to look for some overlap in certain areas. There's going to be, we'll call them indicators as to areas to target. And there's a lot of issues post-Cold War with weapons of mass destruction being maybe not as well guarded or not as well protected in Eastern Bloc countries as they should have been. That's always been a focus. But in 2002, really 2002 into 2003, we really set our sights on Iraq. Now, there's a lot been, there's been a lot written today and there will continue to be a lot written about the, the thought that the Bush administration wanted, wanted essentially was looking for a reason to go to war with Iraq. Um, I don't know. I, I, that's, that's possible. Of course, I, I guess what I'll present here is kind of the argument and how people were, were able to easily get on board with this idea. We, we point to Iraq and, and Saddam just, he's an easy mark, right? So Iraq under Saddam Hussein, we know they've had chemical weapons because they've used chemical weapons against their own people. Saddam's a, a menace to the region. He is a brutal dictator. Thousands, tens of thousands of people have been tortured, killed. People regularly disappeared under Saddam. Disappearing under Saddam simply means you're dead, but nobody can find your body. That, that's disappearing. 
in Saddam's Iraq. So he's not a good guy. And there's not really anyone around the world at the time in 2003 that says that's Saddam. That's the, that's the beacon of morality in the world. So everybody knows he's not, not really a stand-up character. We've seen that he's used chemical weapons, and there are rumors, some intelligence, that he is, is continuing to advance his weapons of mass destruction program, WMD programs, nuclear, biological, and chemical. Now we can look back and see that a lot of the reporting, the intelligence reporting, was muddled maybe is the optimistic way to say it. There was a report that came out about some of this and that was then repeated in multiple reports. And after some period of time, you would say this, this, uh, this piece of intelligence was corroborated because of all of these different reports, but really it all came from one person who was later found to have maybe fabricated or at the very least really exaggerated um, some of those claims so we're looking at Saddam. We know what he's capable of. We think we have intelligence that says that he's continuing to do this. There aren't really solid links between Al-Qaeda and Iraq. There are tenuous ones. We'll look at things and see that senior Al-Qaeda leaders stopped in Baghdad for a period of time or maybe met with you know, Iraqi intelligence. The way I'll say that today is if you really wanted to find a way to link the Saddam and Al-Qaeda together, you could... You could strongly suggest it, but we haven't really to date, down in 2020, seen solid evidence that the two were in any way, shape, or form working together. But that's what happens. We, we suggest, strongly suggest that there are links here between the two organizations. And remember, we're, we're still in the mode of we've got we've to strike back. We have to um, stop this, this international terrorist organization that is Al-Qaeda and, and anybody who could potentially arm them, we've got to stop that. That's how we get to this 65% in 2003 approval for some sort of military action against Iraq. Fast forward to 17 March, 2003. We've been building up in the region for some time, months, when, when I, for months. We, we have kind of semi-permanent troops throughout the region at baseline, but we've been building up in in, uh, in Kuwait and bordering countries around Iraq for a period of time here. And on 17 March, President George Bush gives his, I believe it was during the State of the Union, and he gives an ultimatum to Saddam and Saddam's children and says, you have 48 hours to leave the country or we're coming in. Ultimatum. Now, at risk of being a Saddam apologist, what the heck is he going to do? You know, Saddam hasn't exactly created an environment for a peaceful transition of power. If he were to to accept Bush's uh, proposal and he steps down, there's there's kind of two outcomes here, and uh, one of them, best case scenario for Saddam, is he probably ends up in some sort of international criminal court, maybe facing crimes against humanity or or, or war crime trials. That's the best case. The other side is it's probably not a stretch to say Saddam could be hunted, captured, and brutally killed along with his family and his supporters the minute he doesn't have the backing of the state that he runs. So if you're Saddam, what are you doing? You're probably, you've kind of made your bet is what I'm getting at by March of 2003. So Saddam's going to lay in that bet. He's going to fight. He doesn't exit the country and 
we start to take action. There's a little bit of action prior to March, kind of setting the stage, some um, covert action in the north of the country. Right about the time of the speech, we have special operations forces moving into Western Iraq. And really on 20 March, the early morning hours in Baghdad on 20 March 2003, this campaign kicks off that we, we called shock and awe. And it was a bombing and missile campaign that uh, destroyed a lot of key government infrastructure in and around Baghdad and around the rest of the country. Shortly thereafter, American Marines and soldiers crossed over the berm in Kuwait into Iraq, pushing north to Baghdad. Now, the general plan for this for this war is going to be a movement south to north. We we don't have approval from all countries around Iraq to use their territory as staging areas. We do in some cases have have the ability to fly over the country um, or to use as, as a stopping point, like an airfield. But the primary force moving into Iraq is going to come from Kuwait. And that's where Marines and, and army units have been staging for some time and preparing for this. They cross over the berm and the, the plan here at a high level is going to be the main effort is the U S army in the U S army's third infantry division. And they're going to move, generally south to north to Baghdad. The eastern side of that advance, so just a little bit to their east or to the right when you're looking at a map of Iraq, is going to be the first Marine Expeditionary Force kind of screening and securing the right flank of the 3rd Infantry Division. Now, when we talk about a main effort like this at a big level, that doesn't mean that like they're the first ones in and they're the ones doing all of the fighting on the way up. What that means is there's going to be a lot of other supporting efforts so that you've got this fighting power in the 3rd Infantry Division that remains in strength and, and in capability by the time they get to Baghdad. We all think that Baghdad is probably going to be going to be a pretty major fight. So as they're moving along, there's going to be areas that units have to secure. So think about this. Think about if you've got you know 10 people in line and your main effort is, is the last person maybe or maybe in the middle. You move to an intersection, you have to secure that intersection. Well, you don't want your main effort to stop and secure that intersection and hold on. You want the leading element to stop, secure it, and then maybe pass it off. And then maybe pass it off again. So the next thing you know, by the time you've gotten all the way up to Baghdad, you not only have your main effort leading the fight into the city, but you've got this secured line of communications and line of resupply all the way back to Kuwait. And all along that way, you don't have tanks and Bradleys from the 3rd Infantry Division because there's not enough of them. You've got units from all over the military, including some of our allies, that are holding these rest stops and keeping these roads secure all the way up. That's generally what we're going to see in the eastern side of Iraq as the war kicks off. Now, pretty early on, the... There's not a lot of fighting right out the gate. The Iraqis were expecting a much longer bombardment, and we may have may have caught them off guard a little bit um, by the time we crossed over. And in the southeastern part of the country is a city that the Marines are approaching called Nasiriyah. Nasiriyah sits at an intersection. There's a few roads there. There's Highway 1, Highway 7, and or let's see, Highway 1 is a little bit west. It's kind of the main avenue of approach for uh, the 3rd Infantry. 
But then Nasseria sits at this intersection of Highway 7 and Highway 8, and it crosses the Euphrates and has some key crossing points. It ends up, when you're looking at it, like it's kind of right between the Army and the Marines. It, it's going to have to be taken. Now, Nasseria has three main bridges as you're moving through the town. It's not a huge city, but really moving south to north, there's a railroad crossing. Then there's going to be a bridge crossing over the Euphrates River, right, kind of one of the major rivers in Iraq. And then finally a crossing over a canal known as the Saddam Canal. These three are going to be critical to keep the lines of communication, the lines of resupply through Nasseria open. And the reason we want to keep those open is as the U.S. Army is moving north a little bit west of this location, we're realizing that we have to open up a second line of, of resupply. One's not going to do it. We're going to need multiple. So Nasseria all of a sudden can't bypass it. We're going to have to open that up because we're going to need those north-south communications channels. Now, on the morning of 23 March 2003, there's going to be a U.S. Army unit that moves into Nasseria unintentionally. They take a wrong turn and they end up in this city. And I think this the way to say this is it kind of primes the insurgents. Well, at this time, there's some insurgents. It primes the Iraqi military that are staged in and around Nasiriyah that the Americans are not too far off. That unit is part of the 507th Maintenance Company, a U.S. Army unit that makes a wrong turn, ends up in the early morning hours in Nasiriyah. This is the unit that contains Private Jessica Lynch, who was captured, famously rescued. Um, there would be a lot of people within, her, within that group. See, I think it was 11 American soldiers in that convoy that were killed by taking the wrong turn. It looks like they may have surprised the Iraqis in Nasiriyah, like they weren't quite ready, but now they are. They at least know the Americans are not too far off. And on the morning of 23 March 2003, the Marines of Task Force Tarawa get the call, go ahead, clear Nasiriyah, moving south to north. They move through the first intersection. They, they find a grouping of Iraqi tanks that are destroyed with tow missiles. There's, there's pretty serious fighting pretty quickly. But they move over this first railroad pass, then they get to this, this bridge over the Euphrates. Again, pretty intense fighting. And, and it's worth saying that the Marines at this point have had some contact, but this is going to be kind of the major battle that they face so far. They continue to push, and now that they're between the Euphrates and the Saddam Canal, they're in this area surrounded on both sides by buildings, by structures, kind of urban, that's known as Ambush Alley. And the reason for that is there's kind of one way in, one way out, and a lot of cover for the enemy to take. But there hasn't been that heavy of fighting quite yet. It's still considered possible that the enemy has maybe retreated, maybe run away. Maybe they're just not going to fight. When the Marines get into Ambush Alley, they get hit, and they get hit hard very quickly. The Iraqis open up with artillery fire, mortar fire, heavy mortars. RPGs, machine guns, recoilless rifles, everything is raining down on the Marines, somewhat trapped now in this ambush alley. This area, in short order, eight amphibious vehicles would be destroyed. Now, these amphibious vehicles are they're kind of what you're thinking. They're, they're designed to both be in the water and on land, kind of serve a dual purpose. They're armored, but not as armored as like a tank or a Bradley, and they get removed from service in Iraq before too long. This is kind of one of the things that points to a concern. What do you mean eight are destroyed that quickly? Nonetheless, one of these amphibious assault amphibious vehicles takes an RPG, is on fire, it's destroyed. 
and the call goes out, Corman up. Now, in the Army, they'll yell medic. In the Marines, they'll yell Corman up. And that is going to be a call for the, the, the naval hospitalman that's attached to serve in that capacity as a medic for the Marines. And the person that answers, answers that call is hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca. Fonseca runs through enemy fire, through ambush alley, to get to this vehicle that is burning. It's destroyed. He helps remove a couple of the soldiers from the soldiers, a couple of the Marines from the vehicle and begins treatment. At least two of them have amputated limbs. So he's applying tourniquets, uh, applying battle dressings, keeping them alive. Now, something worth noting when a medic gets in a situation like this is they can't treat five people at once. So what they have to do and what Fonseca does here is he grabs a hold of nearby Marines and starts directing their care, starts directing their actions. You know, hey, put pressure on this leg, apply a tourniquet to that arm. Here's a, here's a dressing, put it on his neck. So Fonseca is hands-on with at least one Marine at all times, but directing the care of all of the others to keep them alive. He quickly organizes a stretcher party and starts to move these Marines, these wounded Marines, to the casualty collection point. There's another vehicle serving in that capacity that's going to shuttle wounded Marines off the battlefield. We're talking about how many of these vehicles are destroyed. Well, as Fonseca is nearing the casualty collection vehicle, it's destroyed. So they hunker down. They get another uh, tracked vehicle to come in and start to evacuate the casualties and get them out of there so they can get, get further treatment. But when that truck comes in, there's not going to be enough, enough room for all of them. So Fonseca stays on the ground under fire with one of the wounded Marines, continues to treat him, continues to keep him alive until about 30 minutes later when another vehicle shows up and they're able to move to the rear. Fonseca then takes off back to the front lines, moving again through enemy fire, through, through mortars and artillery rounds and RPGs, everything impacting all around in a battle that would cost the lives of 18 Marines. Six and a half hour battle cost the lives of, of, of 18 Marines. The deadly area. Fonseca's running right through the middle of it. As he's moving back towards the front lines, he's stopping and treating his fellow Marines as he goes until he gets right back up into the mix of the fight. He'll make another trip back to the aid station and once more move back into the fight before the city is considered somewhat secure by the next day. Fonseca saved the lives of, of multiple Marines that day during the Battle of Nasiriyah, running through incredibly fierce enemy fire and directing the care of the fellow Marines around him when he couldn't be physically hands-on with everybody. And for his actions that day, on 23 March 2003, during the Battle of Nasiriyah in Iraq, hospital apprentice Luis Fonseca was awarded the Navy Cross. Hey, thanks for listening to War Stories. If you get a chance, it'd mean an awful lot if you could head over to Apple or Spotify or wherever you listen to your podcast and leave a review. It helps others to, to find the show. But thanks again for listening. We'll see you next time.